is you don't say he was angry. You show him kicking that rock. This is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of the kick-ass Vanessa Michael Monroe thrillers. And this is The Taylor Stevens Show. It's Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. Taylor, we are well into summer now. And for a lot of people, summer is a time to sort of take it easy and to kick back. I'm assuming that's not the case for you. Not so much. (laughs) (laughs) It's never the case for you. Well, there have been times, like before summer used to be when I would, uh, if I had to do research, international research, I'd try and plan it over the summer because either I would, it would be a case where I could take my kids or I could more easily leave them with their dad. So that's generally um, when I would plan it, but I don't have any of that going on this summer and I'm way, way, way behind with, um, with writing. So this summer I'm like, struggling. My goal is to get as much written as possible before Thriller Fest, because I know as soon as Thriller Fest hits, the chaos begins and it's going to be really hard for me to get back into writing again. And so I won't I won't have a full first draft finished before then, but I'm fighting hard to get as close as I can. All right. We will get into Thriller Fest a little bit next week because that'll be closer to the actual event. We'll get into some of your schedule and things like that that you're doing. But um, what are your goals beyond Thriller Fest, which is in mid-July? So what, like, what do you hope to get done through the summer, between the, the period where the Minions stop going to school and when they start going to school again? God, I would be so, so ecstatic if I actually finished this manuscript I'm working on and had a complete version that I could send off to my agent um, before everything picks back up again. That would just be... If I could have my druthers, that's what it would be. All right. Since we are right now in the middle of a two-part series about getting beyond the first draft, about where are you with the manuscript now? Um, I am filling in the blanks. I've got that first – I've got the structure. I've, got, I've gone all the way to the end, and I've made just verbal vomit onto the page, and now I'm going back and starting to – take those verbal vomit scenes and turn them into something that I can actually work with. Okay. So you still have, so you still have quite, it it would be really good if you got it done by the end of the summer. Sounds like. Yes. I've easily got another month, month and a half, two months. If I'm working hard ahead of me right now. When do the kids go back to school in Texas? Um, In Texas, (laughs) this is really funny. Texas had to pass a law that, Schools could not begin their season, their, the next semester or the school year, however they count it, before the last Monday of August. Because oh. there were so many schools that were sending kids back, so many districts that were sending kids back to school at like the beginning of August, the middle of August. And finally, they're just like, uh-uh, no, the last weekend of August, last, the last Monday of August is the earliest you can send kids back to school. So most school districts start up right around there. All right. So, and I expect that most school kids are in favor of that law. Well, you have to understand what August is like in Texas. (laughs) Well, I'm in Florida and I think it's worse in Texas than it is here. It is the hottest month of the year. 
And there have been times, especially when my kids were younger and they're out having their, you know, field, whatever. And it is 110 degrees outside. And I'm thinking, what the holy hell? Seriously, (laughs) why can we not wait until after Labor Day? Just give us a a few more weeks for the weather to start slowly cooling down. So I just think, you know, having them go to school at the beginning of August is just nuts. I, I just don't understand it. But anyway, that I never went to school like normal people did. So obviously I don't think like <laughs> <laughs> Are you ready to get back into the second part of our two-part series? Absolutely. When we left the episode last week, you were talking specifically about the idea of going through and, and you were doing what you consider to be your, your third pass through, if that's the right term, where you're looking for emotion. And you use the term that this is like a f- adding fine brush strokes to the story. And the question that I have and, and other listeners may have is that when we're writing, we know what's going on. We know what should be on the page. And a lot of times it's not there and you don't see it in your own writing. Yet somehow or other you're able to read these these scenes and not only see that that it's missing a little something but but to know what it is that it's missing so how do you how do you come at the story with fresh eyes like that um i i i don't know if the way that i do it would work for everybody else but for me writing is a very emotional process in the sense that if I can't feel what the characters are feeling, then we're not there yet. Like, I need to feel the characters, whether it's happiness or pain or what it is that that is filling them in that moment. And it doesn't mean that, like, I have multiple personalities living in my head and, like, my days are just a roller coaster of joy and sadness or whatever. But I, as I'm reading that work, as I'm tweaking it, If it doesn't move me to the sense that I can feel that that character really wants this thing, then I've got to keep working it until I feel that. All right. Um, In last week's episode, you gave an example of a scene in The Informationist. I'm going to ask you to give it again if if you can remember that specific scene. It was Monroe had just swum to shore, and there were some other things that were going on, and you felt like there was some emotion missing in that scene. So for people who didn't listen last week, shame on you first. But uh, if anyone (laughs) didn't listen and you don't want to go back, can you you just kind of set that scene up again? So there's this... um... About, I guess, about midway through the book, Monroe's um, kidnapped, dumped into the water. She swims to shore. Um, and from there, she has to walk about a mile or two to get to the nearest road, which is uh, very rarely traveled. And she's just sitting there in the shade of a tree with the bugs biting her and the smell of the dirt and the, the jungle. And she she's just nearly been killed and she has no idea who's done it. And at that point she picks up a stick and she starts gouging it into the earth. And, you know, with each angry slash, you know, her thoughts are churning through the possibilities of who was involved in, in what had just happened to her. All right. And, and in the example last week, you used that the example of adding that layer of 
angrily stabbing the sticks or jabbing the sticks into the ground as a way of showing emotion and as an example of sort of the fine brush strokes that you might use to, to really add life to a scene. But I, I guess my specific question is, you've written the scene, you've probably written it and rewritten it and rewritten it a half dozen times, and yet you read it for the seventh time and you say to yourself, there's something missing. And how do you, how do you even feel the emotion when you're reading something for the seventh time? How does it not become just words? I don't know. <laughs> trust me, I'm reading it way more than seven times. <laughs> I mean, are you doing something in your mind? Are you just shutting things off and, and like trying to go at it as though you've never read it before? No, or, or are you it's just that, for me, I have to be able to read through it until it doesn't bother me anymore. And so as long as it's bothering me, I'm still working on it. And when I read it and it doesn't bother me, then it's like I've just passed over it and it didn't even exist. So in that particular scene, I w was working it over it and it wasn't right. It wasn't right. And granted, you know, back then I didn't know as much about the process as I do now. I hadn't had a chance to think it through or analyze it. So in that moment, as I'm reading it, it dawns on me that I have no idea, like, what would, what would someone like Monroe do in a situation where she's just been betrayed? Surely she would be angry. She's not just going to be sitting by the side of the road waiting for a car to come by. Yes, she she's, doesn't know who did this to her, but it's so cold to just say she's sitting there and it could have been so-and-so and it could have been so-and-so and maybe it was this. It feels very cold and, and there's no emotion there. What, what would she do? And, you know, it's like it just came. It's not like I consciously said, oh, she would pick up a stick. It just came to me as I was writing. It was, it was motion. It was movement. It was the expression of emotion through motion. And that tied it all together. So that was an aha moment. That was my first learning experience in like actually consciously aware of how to add that sort of depth into a scene. And some, it doesn't always have to be through motion, but as humans, we so often express our emotion through motion. And the, the, the thing about writing emotion is that you can't tell it. If you say, oh, he was very angry, there is no emotion in saying he was very angry. And that is pretty, like, I, I get mad when people keep saying, don't, you know, tell, show, don't tell, show, don't tell, because so much of the time they don't know what the heck they're talking about. <laughs> but with emotion, that right there is absolutely a critical juncture where show don't tell matters the most in just about anything. You don't say he was angry. You show him kicking that rock and you, you have the thoughts in his head of why he's kicking that rock, you know, because, you know, his, whatever his reason is for kicking that rock, he's angry, but you don't say he was so angry. He kicked the rock. 
And so that scene with Monroe was the first time it dawned on me how it would be possible to express that emotion through motion and, and completely change a flat, cold, lifeless scene into something that is full of tension that you can feel in your chest. And after you had that epiphany, did, it, did you then go back and look for other opportunities to use the same technique? I don't, I don't think that I did, but I, I have been... And it's not like I'm consciously aware of it. Like now as I'm writing every time, I'm like, oh, how can I do this? It's just that when I encounter a scene that leaves me feeling flat, I know now, oh, I feel flat. Here is something I can do to fix that. Okay, let's go back to the scene again, because I'm just going to keep beating this horse until I understand (laughs) what you're... Do we need to actually find it in a book and read it? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not so much that. It's just the idea of reading a scene, because I, I know that for some writers who write more than you do, um, you know, they might finish a, finish a draft, set it aside, work on something else for six weeks, and then pull the draft out and read it as though it's new. That's not your process. You keep working on something, right? I do. Okay, so, so you're, not, you're never looking at this with fresh eyes. Yet- I mean, there are times because as, once I have finished a, a final draft that I'm willing to send to my agent, for example, then I'm not going to mess with it until I get feedback back from her. And at that point, I'll probably go back and read the entire book again, and it'll have been some weeks that at that point I am looking at it with fresh eyes. But until I get to the stage where I'm willing, ready to send it off, it's pretty rare, unless I've set it aside to work on something else and I have an unfinished book, which that does happen. So I'm, I'm just trying, because that's not where we're at in, in this process. You know, we're still, we're, we're still working through drafts, and I'm just trying to get inside your head to understand what your mental process is to, to read a scene, you know, you said it's a lot more than seven, to read it for the umpteenth time and go, this still needs something. And because it, it didn't move you, even though you know exactly what the scene is and exactly what's going on during the scene. So how, how are you doing that? Maybe it's because even though I know the scene I know what the characters are doing, but I don't really understand what they are feeling. And if I don't understand what they are feeling, the reader's definitely not going to understand what they are feeling. All right. You're saying that as, as though yeah, there's almost like a, a question mark in, in the answer. Is that Well, because I don't really know. Like, it's, it's so much of this is gut instinct. And so how do you take something that is gut instinct and turn around and translate it into a practical step-by-step guide that someone can follow? That's what I'm asking you to do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let me, let me. I mean, I can, there's, there's tips and tricks and like that emotion through motion is, is a tip and a trick, but it, it, you know, so much of this, that's, that's, why some people just are really good at it and some people like me have to just work my ass off. And do you then do the same thing with in every situation if you're sitting there on the side of the road with a different character who's not Monroe, who's not the heroine for the the entire series, are you going through the same process and trying to figure out what they're feeling so that you can get that on the page to flesh them out? It, It depends on the weight of the character in the story. For any, any character that has a point of view and we're hearing or seeing through their eyes, yes, you have to. 
because otherwise they they aren't real. They aren't alive. We have to understand why they're doing what they're doing, and that is very it's it's very finely inserted in. It's it, you're not you know it's it's not a two by four approach, um, but it, it their their emotion through motion is going to be completely different. You you're going to take a completely different tactic in riding a male than riding a female because in real life women tend to overanalyze everything and they spend so much time trying to you know sort out what other people are feeling whereas men aren't like that so if you spend you know too much time inside a man's head trying to make him understand the world around him every male who's reading that character is going to laugh his butt off so <laughs> it it depends on the character of how you're going to go about doing that Okay. And I know, because you've told me this before, I don't know whether it, it was on the air or not, but you've had situations where you're writing male characters and then you go to male characters and, and say, or go, not male characters, go, <laughs> male. go to men that you know right. and say, did I get this right? Yeah, I will do that. Absolutely. I mean, I don't do that for every single um, aspect, like everything that the guys do in the book, but women just in general, don't all, always think the same way as men do. Uh, and I, I remember reading an example from another author who was writing about it, how she was had this story, I guess it was a young adult story or something, where two th- these kids were riding a horse and one of them fell off the horse and got hurt and immediately his friend ran over and, you know, are you okay? And he was so concerned and her husband was like, what is this? If this happened in real life, that boy would be laughing so hard at his friend who fell off the horse because men and women react to those types of situations differently, right? Well, that's what I'm trying to avoid. (laughs) And so that's why if I'm just not 100% sure if this is the way a guy would react, I'll go and just double check it and make sure I got it right. So, yeah. Okay, so once you have gone through the story again in this fine brushstrokes process, are are you essentially done at that point? That's where I I personally consider it a finished draft. Some people would say that's, you know, their fourth draft or whatever. And for me, it might have been my 50th at that point. I don't know. But for the sake of sanity, because at that point I know we're starting over clean, then that's draft one because it's going to go to my agent and then they're going to do overhaul two and then it's going to go to an editor and then there's going to be three, four, five, six, and seven. So I want to count the 50 that came before it. So (laughs) at that point, I consider it a first draft, but for practical reasons, we know that's not a first draft. Okay, now from a timing perspective, since the, the start of this series, the, the idea was going beyond the first draft. So you have the first draft, and that's finished. And I don't mean the first draft that you send to your editor, but the first draft that was 60,000 words, and then you go through and you start flushing it out, and there is then the, the second draft. About how long does that take? Um, it, it depends on how rough the material is. Uh, with each, each subsequent draft is going to move faster because, and, and this is just the way my brain works. I have to have that crap on the page to even know where to begin. And I'll clean it up some and keep, and move on and clean up some. And then when I come back, I'll, I guess this sort of answers the question. When I come back, I'm seeing it through fresh eyes okay. because at that point it's been cleaned up a little bit. And so I can clean it up even more and then move on and come back and do it again. Whereas the level of cleanup 
that I'm doing on the third time through it, I wouldn't be capable of doing that on the first go round because it's incremental. And each time I come back and look at it, I see new things. I feel new things. And so it gives me a chance to take it to the next level. And so I'll do that over and over and over and over again. And the cleaner it gets, the better I become at cleaning it up. All right. Now I've got to go back to the timing question because I'm a guy and I ask a question and I want to get a specific answer. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not dodging. It's just... <laughs> well, let's just use... I don't always know the answer to Let's the use the mask as an example. Okay. So for the, the second draft, the, the, the adding nuance and, and fleshing out characters, that kind of thing. Not the fine brush strokes, but the adding nuance and, and detail and things like that. We'll call that the second draft. How long did that take? I honestly don't know because I don't generally um, log it. You know, it, it's like I, once it's over, I've already forgotten, like whatever. And it's like this vague. I My days blend together. My weeks blend together. I almost can't even tell you what year I wrote that book. All right. Let me, let me ask the question differently. Let's say I had written a first draft. And I was going to do a second draft, and I said, Taylor, how long should this take me? Should it take me a year? No. <laughs> <laughs> how long should it take me? Okay. Um, I guess um, I mean, a month would be reasonable, a month and a half, depending okay. on All right. how rough. Good. How rough the... Okay. Because I have never done it in a month or a month and a half. So, I mean, that... Were you doing it in like a week? No, no. It's, it's like <laughs> three to six months. Oh, it takes me forever because I, I don't know why. It just takes me My forever. My first draft really is the hardest. Getting getting the story down, having the material to work with is the hardest for me because, and I, I've talked about this before, I'm not really a creative person. And so the actual act of creating and putting the the furniture in the room and placing the things and what that character is seeing, that's all really tedious to me. But once I have all of that down and I have something to work with, then the subsequent drafts are a lot more fun and they're easier because at that point I'm no longer having to figure out what happens so much as fine-tune it, I guess. Okay. Well, I think we have wrapped up this topic then. So that leaves it to me for the call to action. Ah, yay! <laughs> okay, and today's call to action. We've tried this a couple times with... I, let's just say we have not had overwhelming success with this. So we're going to try it one more time. We have this Google Voice phone number that we've set up where we would love it if you would call in with your writing questions or tailor questions, either one. If you're struggling with something with, uh, with your manuscript, uh, let us know what you're struggling with. Maybe we can help you. So anything like that, call this number, leave a message. We will play your message on the next or on a future episode and Taylor will respond and and we'll we'll dig into your specific issues and that number is 469-587-9367 and you'll find that in the show notes wherever you find this podcast it'll if you get it on your iPhone you'll find that phone number in the in the episode description there so call that number with your questions, and we would love it. If this is just a bad idea, we'll call it an experiment, and we will have learned from it, and we will move on from there. But if this is something you guys are interested in, please call. 
It would be so much fun, you guys. Come on, play along here. <laughs> it would be. All right, we are done for this week. Thanks. All right. See you guys next week.